says, Repent or Perish. And this morning I'm going to bring you a message on repentance. If you'll turn to Luke 15, look at verses 7 and 10. Luke 15, 7 and 10. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Verse 10. Likewise I say unto you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now both of these expositions on repentance came from stories that you could not see any repentance in the one being sought after by the Lord. In the first one, it was the shepherd seeking the sheep. You didn't see the sheep do anything. Yet our Lord says, uh, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repented. So that sheep had to be a repenting sheep. When we read verse 10, that followed a woman sweeping for a lost coin. That coin didn't do a single thing but lay there in the dirt. Yet it says, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. You see, there's very many stages of a repenting sinner, of an awakened sinner. And a lot of times it's misunderstood, especially the very word repentance. I talked to a young man this week who said that he knew he was lost, but he never repented, never felt like repenting. And that would be strange to other ministers, I guess. But the only thing I could tell him is, well, you have to ask God for repentance. It's not something you can work up if you want to or not. So we're going to talk a little bit about repentance today. There are a whole lot of good Bible words that have lost their meaning by being varnished over by religion. And down through the centuries, the varnish fades and cracks and dust and cobwebs bury them from view. Well, today we want to sweep away the dust and cobwebs and resurrect a great Bible word called repentance. Let's see how it's used in the scriptures to get a little information about it. In one place, our Lord warns us about repentance. Now, look at Luke 13, 3. Just back up two pages. Luke 13, 3 and 13, 5. You're going to find identical verses. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Well, let's read verse 1 and 2 and down through 5. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans. You know, Galileans were, huh? That's where he came from, from Galilee. They're the little providence, little province. 
whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now the two examples our Lord gave here was first religious sinners who were killed by the Romans when they were in their religious Offering, they were offering sacrifices, and that's where they were killed. And the second was non-religious bystanders who were victims of a tragedy. The tower fell on them. In both cases, they all lost their lives, and that's the worst thing that a normal natural man believes can happen to him, just to die. But when our Lord says perish, he goes beyond the death of the body and sees the soul cast into the lake of fire to be punished day and night forever and ever. That's the perishing he's talking about. Want to see it? Revelation 20.10. When I say forever and ever, it means that you don't go to sleep when you die. Your soul, once it's created, when your body is born or when it's made in the womb, the Lord creates a soul and it's immortal. It will live forever. Verse 10, Revelation 20, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. That part is kind of a history and you would have to learn with all those, what happens to the those three characters. But here's what we're talking about. And shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not like our Jehovah Witness friends want to tell you, oh, you go to sleep and that's all it's to. And those that'll have life will have life and the rest will go to sleep. God's too good to punish anybody. They'll find out. You see, that word perish is used in John 10.28. Let's take a quick peek at John 10.28. That's where our Lord says, And I give unto them eternal life. See? And they shall never perish. Now that perishing has to do with eternal things. So they are going to be perishing forever. They are going to be punished forever. Where the Revelation 20 over there told us they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Those that perish are separated from God forever and tormented forever. Well, let's turn to Acts 17.30 right now. Acts 17.30. We'll talk about repentance. Acts 17.30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. 
whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Here we find a command to repent. Why? What happens if you don't? Well, verse 31 told us that if you don't repent, you are sure to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this judgment is not like the standard joke of a person standing at heaven's gate before St. Peter. He interviews you to see if you're fit to enter. Oh, I've heard so many jokes. Like, and some of them are funny. You have to laugh. You have to laugh because they bring the human element into it, which we are. Well, then, if that's not what it is, then what is this judgment? Well, back to Revelation 20 and look at verses 11 through 15. Show you that judgment. Revelation 20, one more time. Verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead, delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Mind you, there's no in-between. You either have eternal life or you have eternal damnation. Well, how is it that the Lord Jesus Christ is the judge? Well, turn to John 5.22 for the answer. And John 5.22 We, found out, we find an out-and-out statement. It says, For the Father judgeth no man. So the Father is not the judge. But hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So there's where we find the Lord Jesus Christ being the judge. Verse 27 puts teeth into the judgment and hath given him authority to execute judgment also. Not only is he the judge, but he's the executor, because he is the Son of Man. Won't the lowly, meek, loving Jesus be a pushover for some clever religious people? Oh, the smarties that know all the answers? I don't think so. I'll show you why. Look at Psalm 2, verse 12. Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. 
doesn't sound too much like a push over there. While you're close by the middle of the Bible, turn to Proverbs 1. Look at verse 22. Proverbs 1, 22. Religious, educated, smart Alex, know-it-all, let's take a peek. How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Pushover? No. No, not in that day. The meek and lowly Jesus Christ has ascended back to heaven to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords and also the judge of all mankind. Repentance is not works. It's a gift of God. Turn to 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2.25. This is kind of instructions to a minister, to a witness of the, for the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 20, uh, 24, you can, we can start there. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance, peradventure, not demand repentance. He's not obligated. He doesn't have to. Peradventure, maybe, according to his will. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And they and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Not many people realize that all mankind are under Satan's captivity. Regeneration, Holy Spirit conviction, conversion is the freeing of the sinner from Satan's snare. Now many a sinner determined to sin just a little bit longer and then repent, they never find repentance. There are those who place some type of reformation as their repentance. Some join a church and try to live as good as they can, and sad to say the church 
promotes that sort of thing, encourages that to merit salvation. This young man I told you about said, uh, uh, I know I'm lost, but I'm good. Uh, I'm doing just as good as I can. Well, that's wonderful for everybody. You know, everybody should. But it has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing at all. There's a church out there that changes the word to penance. Instead of re repentance, it's penance. And that's something you have to do to merit salvation. Now, if any of these folks would just read the Bible, they would see that if they did nothing but good things in their life, always sweet, always good, good to their neighbor, good to their kids, to God, these works of righteousness stink. Turn to Isaiah 64, 6. I want to show it to you in God's Word. Isaiah 64, 6. It says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. What about these righteousnesses? Why do they stink? Because the sinner wants to use them as merit toward his salvation. That's a natural thing from the natural human heart. The good that I do should be used to my account. Now, that's not just the common man who works out in the public or works for the public, but this applies to religious go-getters who believe they are doing great things for Christ. Now, is there such an animal out there? There must be. Look at Matthew 7, verse 22. Matthew 7, 22. We keep going back to these same great scriptures, but they never leave, they never change. They're always there for our instruction. These scriptures we're going to read right now are some of the most hair-raising, disturbing scriptures in all the Bible. Verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Now listen, they're calling him by the proper name, Lord, Lord. That means they have bowed in submission, at least they think they have, to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're using the terminology. But you and I are going to find out it wasn't like that in their heart. It's only words. Playing the hypocrite, but doing great things in religion. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Imagine. Preaching. Preaching. Casting out demons, 
and in many other wonderful things, and he calls them works of iniquity. They're only works of religion in his name. All right? What stands out here in your mind when you read this? The big thing to me is knowing Christ and him knowing you. That's what makes the difference. Now, repentance is something that God does within a man by his Holy Spirit. Here's a question. How is it possible for the Holy Spirit to do anything with a sinner who's dead in trespasses and sins? Especially with a sinner who thinks religious or spiritual things are foolishness. Well, I guess you've got to look at that one. That 1 Corinthians 2.14 where the Word of God gives a description of the natural, normal, functioning human being. Your neighbor next door, across the street, the people you work with, the ones in the schools, you go to the mall, it's full of natural men. What do they think? But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's foolishness about sin, about salvation, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about him being the substitute, about eternity, about having a new body, about the resurrection. All of that's foolishness. They hear it, it goes in one ear and out the other. They'll celebrate Christmas, they'll celebrate Easter, make a great big thing over it, and the Lord Jesus Christ is lost completely to their mind in it. It's foolishness to them. Him being a sacrifice, him being God in the flesh. God mysteriously quickens or gives spiritual life to the sinner. Now, the parable of the sower describes how the gospel seed is sown and how it takes in various types of ground. The ground being, in the parable, the hearts of sinners. Well, that good ground that brought forth fruit didn't get to be good ground by itself. It had to be plowed, harrowed, fertilized. The hard ground had to be broken to pieces and that's what God does to the heart. God's plow is the Holy Spirit that digs deep and brings that which lay dead and buried to the surface. You know how the plow turns underneath, turns the bottom part up and puts the top part down. All that soil underneath had never seen light and had never been exposed to fresh air and sunshine. That work of the Holy Spirit is described in John 16, 8. All of that work is described in one little verse. It says, And when he is come, that is the Holy Spirit, as the Comforter, when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The plowing of a sinner's heart is called reproving. He'll reprove the world of sin. 
And in the elect sinner, the first touch of the plow is called quickening or awakening. When God saves a sinner and that sinner looks back into his and her life, like Peter suggests, when he says, make your calling and election sure, the sinner knows when spiritual life was conceived in his heart. The new birth is just like the first birth or the natural birth, having a conception, a growth in the womb, and a delivery. Three distinct stages. In the first birth, the child remembers none of that. You and I have no recollection whatsoever of our natural birth. In the new birth, you remember it all. Every saved soul can go back to the time when they were in their own mind, rich, increased with goods, and had need of nothing. Look at Revelation 3.17. Revelation 3.17. This is important to read because it's a description of all the churches today. There's always exceptions. All the big churches this will include. Because thou sayest I am rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. The bigger the church, the more they fit into this verse. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. Now you see, when you read those words, you say, Whoo, that's a pathetic case. How terrible to be wretched, miserable, poor, blind. And I want to tell you something. If you know it, it's the most wonderful blessing that God can give you before he saves your soul. You've got to know it. You've got to be a lost sinner before you can be a found sinner. Christ says that's their condition, but they don't know it. To know it is blessed. How often does David say, I'm poor and needy? And he was, probably was the richest man in Israel. I'm poor and needy, Lord. I need thy mercy. In other words, this person here, rich increased with goods, they were cruising through life, either successful or striving to be successful very possibly in their life, including church and religion. After all, to be respected, most folks belong to a church, and they go on Sunday morning. Your good deeds far outweigh your bad deeds, so you had nothing to worry about. But one day you heard something, or read something, that pertain to your soul or eternity, and you were disturbed, and it wouldn't go away. That's God working in your heart. It had to do with God hating sin and being very 
just about the law that he had given to people. No loopholes. No way out. In every case of God saving an elect soul, that person is somehow directed to the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit uses that Word of God to give spiritual life to a dead sinner. Okay, that part in your life and mine we call conception. When it dawns in upon you, you're a lost sinner. That's conception. You know there was a time when you knew you were lost. Now, as the Lord taught you from his word, you begin to see just how vile you really are. How deceitful and desperately wicked your heart is. And along with that, God doesn't leave you despairing. Along with that, he shows you the love that God had from eternity for sinners just like you. Now, maybe you didn't discover that some of these verses early, but they're there. How about John 3.16 for starters? Almost everybody lands on that one. Can you take it for yourself? Can you plead it back to God? It's a promise, in a way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, you remember what I told you about that word perish? It doesn't mean just die in this life. It means to be standing before the judge of the universe at that day when all men will be judged for their sins and cast into the lake of fire. That's the perishing. So the awakened sinner has read this, God so loved the world. Then he says, oh, but does he love me? Turn to Jeremiah 31.3, and we get it right down to the individual. Jeremiah 31.3. If this is individual with Jeremiah, it's individual with every elect sinner. And the Lord hath of old appeared unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, Everlasting. Okay, that starts a little bit before anything you can remember. And it's going to go on past anything you can imagine. Everlasting love. Therefore, because God has loved you from eternity... With loving kindness have I drawn thee. He does that to every elect soul. He, draw, he does that to every awakened sinner that he's bringing to himself. He draws you because of an everlasting love. Now, we've had the conception, described it to you. You found out you're lost. Now, in those months of growing in the womb of Holy Spirit conviction, you were growing and dying at the same time. Growing in the knowledge of Christ and the things of eternity and dying to self, sin, and the world. 
Where does your knowledge of Christ come from? It comes from the Word of God. Your Bible becomes your dearest friend. In the Word, Christ is lifted up from cover to cover. He was promised to Adam and Eve, was looked for by all the holy men and the prophets, and about 2,000 years ago was born in Bethlehem of a virgin exactly as it was prophesied by the prophets. His works and life demonstrated that he was God. He gave warnings and made promises and held out invitations to sinners. As a teacher, his instructions are priceless. He says, search the scriptures. Another time he says, I know my sheep. I give unto them eternal life. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, I and my Father are one. And of course, the good news from the cross, it is finished. Do you understand that a child of God, while under Holy Spirit conviction, is taught the doctrines of the Bible. When the Holy Spirit reproves of sin, righteousness, and judgment, before graduation day, the sinner knows the sovereignty of God, the depravity of the heart, the offices of Christ and his work, the work of the Holy Spirit. They know truth from error, and most generally, the awakened sinner can spot a hypocrite at 20 paces. You ask, what is this graduation day? We'll turn to Galatians 3.22. Galatians 3.22. When you talk of graduation, you talk about a school. When you talk about school, you talk about teachers, principals, schoolmasters. Here's where it is, verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, huh, modern religion don't believe that. They think everybody's got faith. Turn your faith loose. You read, what did you just read? Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, okay? You understand what graduation day means when I say that? When Christ is revealed to your heart, you graduate. You've already come through the school. When faith has come is when Christ is revealed to your heart as your substitute redeemer. Now, there are some who appear to enter the same classroom, but they enter more on a graduate level. Oh, they've heard of the doctrines, but they've never really believed them. And they heard about being lost. So they took their place as a lost sinner for a few days. 
Ah, but they think, this is ridiculous, waiting for God to teach me and save me. I know the doctrines. I don't need to be taught. I'll believe the best I can and change my doctrine to make God sovereign. And there, my friends, you have the birth of the sovereign grace movement. Even the name is a misnomer because there's no other type of grace. Grace comes only from God to the elect so that the very mention of grace means that it is from our sovereign God. There is no other kind of grace but sovereign. I have known several preachers who faked their way through Holy Spirit conviction, and they had large ministries. The Bible makes no mistakes. By their fruits ye shall know them. You know, you hear that quite often. You want to see where that is? That's Matthew 7.20. Turn over there and mark it in your Bible so that sometime when somebody says, oh, you, you, you're judging, you, you really, you can't judge anybody. Hey, the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. Is that judging? No, it's looking and telling you exactly what you're seeing. Matthew 7.20, wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And then that's where he follows, many will say unto me in that day, you see, some of them had fooled somebody, but they didn't fool the Lord Jesus Christ, not by the fruit they had. Now before our time runs out, let me tell you a little bit more about repentance. It's not an event like some would tell you. I repented and then God saved me. Repentance becomes a long, lifelong companion. And it's right along with faith. You repent and believe every day. You repent over things you say, over things you do, over things you don't do. Repentance is the gift that allows you to confess your sins. Look at 1 John 1, 9, marvelous scripture. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, I just told you that repentance is the gift that allows you to confess your sins. And then faith is the gift that gives assurance that those sins will be forgiven when you confess them. Once God saves a sinner, the Holy Spirit becomes the comforter then to that sinner. I have often had to chuckle to myself in John 16, 7, where the Lord says, when the comforter will come, and then he describes his work as reproving. Well, what is so comforting about being reproved? Not a thing. Ah, but it's for your good. It's necessary that you be reproved of sin, righteousness, and judgment before the comforting part of the gospel applies to you. The Holy Spirit indwells that sinner gives life, gives spiritual life where there was nothing before but darkness and death. 
Yet he will continue always to reprove of sin. That's not going to change. Now, righteousness and judgment you have learned well. The righteousness you desperately need is earned by Christ and imputed to you. You've learned that. Holy Spirit's taught it to you. And the judgment due to you, the Lord Jesus Christ paid for with his blood and his life. But as long as you live, the Holy Spirit will reprove of sin. That means as long as you live, there's a war going on within you. And Paul bemoaned that war. Turn to Romans 7, look at verse 23. Romans 7, 23. Free of sin and the Lord saves you? No, I'm sorry. Just doesn't work that way. Romans 7, 23 and 24. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who was saying that? Paul. Was he saying it before he was saved? No, he was saying it long after he was saved. He's telling it to the Romans as he's writing them this letter. O wretched man that I am. Something about the flesh, something about the members. They can almost burn you up wanting to sin so bad. But Paul wouldn't have, but he wouldn't have bemoaned this thing if the gift of repentance had not been granted to him. Now, in closing, let me show you where and when repentance bids us farewell. Romans 8.23 Right across the page. Well, let's read verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption of to wit the redemption of our body. What's Paul saying? Can't wait to get his new body. Can't wait to have his resurrected body. Now, when we quit breathing, when this body is laid in the grave, your repentance is over. No more do you have to cry, Lord, forgive my sin. waiting for the redemption of our body, that new body, when you will not have to repent anymore. That's when you quit repenting, when you quit breathing. But you haven't started living yet until you have your new body. You'll breathe again, but you'll never have to cry out against your sin. Repentance will leave you. But for now, repentance is dear. Repentance is precious. It's wonderful for God to convict our hearts of our coldness, our deadness, our sinfulness, turn us to him. We cry, we pray, we meditate, we read. That's all part of the new nature and being a new creature.
what a wonderful salvation we have. But repentance, don't misunderstand, is a gift. If you think you can just do it any time you please, you're going to find out. You can't. It's a gift of God, and when God grants you repentance to cry out against your sin, against your sin nature, and seeing how foully and horribly we have treated the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts and minds and in our lives, that'll make you cry. May the Lord bless all you folks, give you that gift.